you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, take them out. Turn with me once again to the Gospel of John and to chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're going to continue uh, the series of, of sermons that we've been in uh, entitled Lessons from the Upper Room, where we've been looking at the final words of Christ uh, on the eve before he was crucified. And, and what's interesting, the context tells us is even though these were the final words of Christ to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion, the disciples did not realize that this was the final night they would have with Jesus. The context tells us that. But they do know that something ominous is coming because Jesus had alerted them to it. As a matter of fact, back in chapter 13, earlier that evening, Jesus had created quite the stir, if you will recall, by uh, revealing that there was one among them who would betray him. And he had even sort of um, discreetly identified that betrayer as Judas Iscariot. You would also remember that in chapter 13, Jesus had announced to them he was going away and that where he was going, they could not follow him. And, and that had created great anxiety among them. He had also looked at what many of us would say would be the, the chief disciple or at least the most vocal one, and that would be Peter. And he had announced to him that he would deny his relationship with the Lord on three separate occasions before the morning would come. So the disciples knew that something was happening. They may not have known exactly what it was, but there was an ominous tone. And it was as a result of chapter 13 that Jesus in chapter 14 begins to provide comfort to their hearts. He had told them, look, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go there, I will come back to bring you to myself. He had certainly done that, but he had also told them that, that another helper would come. He would send one like him who would come and accomplish many of these same things, but even in a greater way in their lives as a result of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he had also promised that peace would dwell upon them, his peace that he would give to them because of the relationship that they had with him. And he had promised them that their prayers would be answered. But then in chapter 15, as we've been studying through there, Jesus' encouragement of his disciples continues and his instructions for them continue. He tells them that they must abide in him so that they could live fruitful and, and productive lives. And then he does something amazing that we looked at even last week. He does the amazing thing of calling his disciples his friends. And, and he, he tells them, you are men specifically chosen by me. And you are men with whom I enjoy a special closeness. Now, I would submit to you that in many respects, right there would have been an awesome place to have just concluded all the instructions with regard to these disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. This would be a wonderful place to just sort of let everything just sort of die off because after all, he's called them his friends. He's reiterated the love that he has for them. He's reiterated the love that he expects them to have for one another and the love that, that they all share together. It would be a lovely and a loving place to end the instructions on this night. But our Lord's instructions and encouragement would have been incomplete had he stopped there. In fact, as we will see from our text this morning, Jesus moves to a dark subject. He moves to a subject that provides as strong of a contrast with the love that he had described, that he had for them, and that they were to have with each other as could possibly be imagined. In fact, take note of the contrast yourself. Jesus says there in verse 17, these things 
I command you that you love one another. But then notice how dramatically different the very next verse is as Jesus makes the transition to this very dark subject that he will address this morning. Begin reading with me in verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. These things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, we come to you today thanking you for the words that you have spoken that have been written and recorded for us that we can now read and and, and take to heart that we can trust that they are true, that we know that you have spoken them and that we can apply them directly to our hearts and our lives. And Lord, sometimes things that, that you say and things that, that the word reveals to us are not easy for us, and yet we know they are good for us. And so we pray today, like good, strong medicine, that this, this word will be applied to our lives in such a way that it would strengthen us and that it would cause us to be healthy in our relationship with you and as we continue to persevere in that which you have given us to do, and that is proclaiming the good news of Christ to a lost and a dying world. We pray this for your glory and for your honor in Christ's name. Amen. I appreciate so much the words of, of Greer earlier. And... Um, you know, as I was reflecting this week, you know, as a pastor who is committed to biblical exposition and whose primary MO is to move through books of the Bible, or if nothing else, at least to move through sections of books of the Bible, verse by verse and, and paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. Well, the, that often um, requires me to deal with passages that are difficult 
and hard to chew and to swallow. Now, sometimes that is the case because the text presents for us a, 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 a passage that is difficult to, to, to just get your hands around and understand. It's like gristle. It's hard to chew. It's hard to, to figure. It's like a tough nut that can't quite get cracked. You're trying to get this and, and understand it. Sometimes the passage is difficult for that reason. Sometimes it's not hard to understand at all. It's very clear. It's very plain that the text reveals. What makes it difficult is that it's not, it doesn't taste good. It's bitter to the taste. We don't like it, not because it's hard to understand, because it's just hard for us to stomach the reality of what it presents. I would put today's text in the latter category. I've entitled today's sermon, Hated and Persecuted by the World. And, and while I readily admit that such a subject is bitter to taste, it is nevertheless necessary for Christians. It's necessary that true believers in Christ arm ourselves with the knowledge and the insight that the Lord reveals to us in this passage. In fact, the context reveals that on the eve of his own crucifixion, at a moment when Jesus knew that his time was drawing near and when he could have, he could have chosen his, his words uh, to be something different, but he carefully chose the words that he used. And he had clear intention with what he was going to communicate. He gives his disciples an advanced warning of what was going to come their way so that they would be prepared when it did. His words are kind of like a, a weather radio that you may have in your home that, that is designed to alert you to an approaching storm so that when you hear that, you can make preparation and you can choose how to respond based upon that warning. So with that being said, these are how I believe the Lord's words are intended for us. And on the outline that I provided you this morning, I'm just offering you two main points, two main headings that I think will sort of pull us through this text today. And based upon what Jesus says, I believe I've added some, some sub points there to sort of help amplify those two main points. And the first major point, as well as its first sub point, simply identify what Jesus' disciples should expect. In fact, that's the first point for you. Jesus' disciples should properly expect to be hated and persecuted by the world. Really, the question that bubbles from that is why? And that's the first sub-point that I have for you. Sub-point A is simply this. Why should we expect that? Well, we should expect it because we are identified with Jesus and the world hated Jesus. We are identified with Jesus and the world hated Jesus. Jesus begins by saying, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me. Before it hated you. Notice that this is a conditional sentence. It begins with the word if. So it's a conditional sentence. But it's stated in such a way so as to assume that the condition that it presents is true. In other words, Jesus tells his disciples because he was hated. And because his disciples have identified themselves with him. Then they too can expect to be hated just as he was. Now, if you'll remember earlier that same night after Jesus had washed his disciples' feet, this is back in chapter 13, he, he had told his disciples this in verse 16 of that chapter. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you that a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. 
Now, Jesus used that analogy there to, to present the fact that because of their relationship with him, they should go about loving one another just as he had demonstrated his love for them, which was selfless and, and sacrificial. He used that analogy there to link himself and what he did with his disciples and what they should do. He uses the same analogy here in chapter 15, verse 20, when he says, remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. Well, then he takes that same analogy and he turns it. He says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In other words, it's not just in what you do that needs to link up with how I did things, but you can also expect whatever happened to me is also going to happen to you. Why? Because we have that connection with one another. And a servant's not greater than his master. Now, it is that point that we should not gloss over too quickly. Jesus clearly states, and we know from what Scripture teaches, that he was hated by the world and he was persecuted by it as well. The question that comes up is why? As one is asked, why should people hate Jesus? What, what harm has he done? He robbed no banks, he raped no one, he murdered no one, he slandered no one. He was known for his healing power, his word of truth, his unflagging integrity, and the rich texture of his love. Why then should people hate Jesus and his disciples after him? Well, Jesus answers the question. Notice what he says in verse 22. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. In verse 24, he says, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. So Jesus said, It is by my words, according to verse 22, and by my works, according to verse 24, that I have exposed the world's sin and I've taken away any excuse that they might have for living in their sin. That's what Jesus did. Now, that actually is the central message of the entire Gospel of John. John begins in chapter 1 by stating that Jesus is the true light that has come into the world, but who was nevertheless rejected by the world. Jesus himself claims in John chapter 8 and also in John chapter 9, I am the light of the world. But according to John chapter 3, we find that that light was not welcomed. In fact, just after that most famous verse in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Just a couple of verses later down in verse 19, we read this, and this is condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And for everyone practicing evil that hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. It's because of this Jesus states clearly in John chapter 7, verse 7, the world hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Jesus comes and he exposes that which is already there. He exposes the sin and the, the depravity and the degradation of humanity and humanity rejects him as a result. D.A. Carson sums it up well. He says, to come to Jesus and confess him as Savior and Lord requires contrition, a bended knee. One cannot come to Christ sensing no need, no unworthiness, no sin. 
One cannot come with head held high as a partner in the enterprise of salvation. It is impossible for the light of the gospel in the person of Jesus simultaneously illumines our grimy and corrupt hearts and points us to him who alone makes all things clean and new. And in that moment, he writes, in that moment of self-revelation, either the grace of God takes hold in the center cries for mercy, for cleansing, for life, or else he loathes the light that has exposed the dirt. And the latter is the reaction of the world, and it is the principal ground of the world's hatred of not only Christ, but of his followers as well. So the first thing that we recognize, the first thing that comes and hits us right in the face from this text is this. Followers of Jesus should expect to be hated and persecuted by the world because they have identified themselves with Jesus and the world hated Jesus. But there's another reason that we should expect to be hated and persecuted by the world. It's the second subpoint there. Subpoint B is because we are no longer identified with the world. We're no longer identified with the world. Jesus clearly states in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because I, you are not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You're no longer of the world. He says in his prayer in John chapter 17, verse 14, he says, he prays to the Lord, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Here's the point. Those who have been saved have necessarily been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And therefore, Christians, by definition, have been united to Christ, who is the light, and therefore they stand underneath his lordship. The world, on the other hand, does not stand under the light of Christ's lordship and is therefore at odds with him and remains in the dark. As Carson has put it, the church and the world are therefore heading in different directions. They're operating under different orders. They are cherishing distinct allegiances. And here's what I want you to know. It is that fundamental difference that lies behind the message of James in, in James chapter 4, verse 4, when he says friendship with the world is enmity with God. It's, it's that that lies behind what John would go on to write in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's what lies behind what he writes later in 1 John chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. He says, you are of God, little children, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. Now, I should point out to you that the fundamental difference between Christians and the world must never cause believers to hate those who are in the world. Listen, to the contrary... We who have been brought out of darkness, we, we who have, have been transferred into the kingdom of God's glorious light, well, we recognize that the world was where we once identified ourselves. That's where we came from. 
Therefore, we do not hate those whose identity is still there. Rather, out of compassionate love for them and out of obedient love for the Lord that has sent us, we go to them and we carry the good news of the gospel. We carry the light of Christ being reflected in our lives. We are not the light. We simply are the mirrors. We are the reflectors of his light to them. We take it to the world out of compassionate love for them and out of obedient love for the Father. We go to them so that they might come to know that same salvation that you and I have been blessed with. But brothers and sisters, we should not fool ourselves into expecting them to treat us in the same way. In fact, the world will always pour its venom on those who do not conform to its viewpoints and to its perspectives. As the Scottish theologian A.B. Bruce once wrote, he said, Men love those who hold the same opinions and occupy the same position, follow the same fashions, pursue the same ends with themselves. But... They regard all who differ from them in these respects with indifference, dislike, or positive animosity. Hence, here he writes, hence arises the dilemma for believers. Either they must forfeit the honor, privileges, and hope of their salvation and descend into the dark world, which is without God and without hope, or they must be content while retaining their position as called out of the darkness to accept the drawbacks which adhere to it. That is to be hated by those who love the darkness rather than the light. So, if, if we are Jesus' disciples, Jesus makes it clear to us that we should expect to be hated and persecuted by the world because we've identified ourselves with him and the world hated him. And because we no longer identify ourselves with the world. But then there's one third reason that this text presents for us why we should expect hatred and persecution. It's subpoint C there. We should expect it because the world is ignorant of God. The world is ignorant of God. Notice what Jesus says in verse 21. He says, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. Look down later in chapter 16, verse 3 that I read for you. Jesus says there, and these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Again, when Jesus prays his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 25, he says, O righteous Father, the world has not known you. In other words, with the world, there is a true ignorance of who God is. And as the scriptures go on to reveal to us, it's not just ignorance. It is a willful ignorance. It is an ignorance that suppresses truth. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes this in the opening chapter of his letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You see, what Paul tells us is that because God created everything, and because we were made in his image, 
then there is enough of his nature and his character stamped upon us and upon his creation that even though we are marred by sin, we have no excuse before him. But then consider this. For those who have access to the scriptures, for those who have access to God's divinely revealed self-revelation, then there is even more culpability in remaining ignorant of God. You see, the Old Testament, from beginning to end of it, pointed toward the coming of a Messiah who would come and redeem those who are God's own. The New Testament is given to us and reveals very clearly that that person is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the one whom God promised and who now has been given and has given his life as a ransom for many to as many as will believe upon him. And therefore, to reject Jesus is to reject God. It is to remain willfully ignorant in the face of that which has been revealed. Jesus once told a group of Pharisees who were trying to catch him in his words over in John chapter 8, verse 19. He says, you neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. You see, it's that knowledge of of both Jesus and God that Jesus refers to in John 17, verse 3. He says it is the essence of that which is eternal life. He, He prays this in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, in light of that, thinking along those lines, consider just how willfully ignorant one must be to do what Jesus mentions in John 16, verse 2, that we just read. In John 16, 2, Jesus says, there will be those who drive you out of the synagogues because you have united yourself to me, and they will even kill you, he says, all the while deceiving themselves into believing that they have done God a service. That's the willful ignorance that Jesus exposes. So what we've seen in this first point is that hatred and persecution will necessarily come and will, should be expected by those who have united themselves to Christ because they identify themselves with him and he was hated by the world. It also tells us that we should expect it because we are no longer attached to the world and the world will hate us because of that. And then it also says that we should expect persecution because the world is willfully ignorant of God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I mentioned, this lesson is distinctly different from the encouraging and the comforting words of chapter 14 and even the earlier words of chapter 15. Nevertheless, we realize that Jesus is predicting what will come. He's he's forewarning his disciples. And he does it so that they can be prepared to respond So so what should that response be? In light of the coming hatred and persecution that the disciples can surely expect, what does the Lord expect for us to do? Are we to run and hide from it? Are we to get angry and, and to fight back with the world just as they fight us? Are we to retaliate against them the same way that they come at us? Are we to wring our hands and worry and and cower in fear? No. The Lord tells us exactly what we should expect so that he can tell us what he expects from us in response. In fact, note the second point on your outline. 
The second major heading is this. Jesus' disciples should properly respond to the world's hatred. And the first sub-point that we come underneath that is this. We should respond by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus reminds his disciples once again of the role of the Holy Spirit here. He has already discussed the function of the Holy Spirit back in chapter 14. He's going to delve into it again in chapter 16. But right here in chapter 15, verse 26, he reveals that when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Now, I should point out that this verse sparked great controversy within the church. In fact, Stephen Cole sort of summarized it this way. The interpretation of this verse split the Eastern and the Western churches over whether the Spirit eternally proceeds only from the Father, that's the Eastern understanding, or from the Father and the Son, that's the Western understanding. But let me just help maybe a little bit here. The focus of the Trinity is not the focus of this verse. The focus of this verse here is rather the mission of the Holy Spirit that Jesus highlights. And the mission of the Holy Spirit and the helper that Jesus describes him as here is that he will come and, and, and he will continue to witness to Jesus even after he has ascended back to the Father. And how's he going to do that? How will the helper do that? Well, he's going to continue to do it through the word of God. We've already discussed that in pre. He's going to cause the disciples to remember all of those things that Jesus had taught them. And then he will help them to be able to write those things down, to codify them, to give us something that we will have centuries later. But also he will do it, the helper will do it through the empowering of believers so that their verbal witness will continue. And they will continue to share the good news of the gospel with the world around them. That is precisely what Jesus said in his final words prior to his ascension. Words that became critical and, and central to the outline of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. A few chapters later. Peter testified of the Spirit's power. In Acts chapter 5, verse 32, he says, We are his witnesses, and so now, so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So that leads to the next thing that this passage teaches us regarding our response to the world's hatred and persecution. First of all, we must rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. But next sub-point is this, we must continue to testify of Jesus. His power allows us to continue to testify of him. Jesus says to his disciples in verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, he's speaking here to the 11 remaining disciples. And the final part of verse 27 indicates that those who had been with Jesus from the beginning are really being called to a special office, the office of the apostle. In fact, when the early church sought to replace Judas Iscariot, Peter spoke of the necessity of what Jesus emphasizes here. He does that in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Peter says there, Therefore of these men who have, been, who have accompanied us 
All the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. You can go on and read there that the man Matthias was chosen to replace Judas. He was one who fit the bill for exactly one of those who had been with them and been with the disciples, been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry all the way to the end. What we must recognize, though, is that while it is accurate to say that none of us could have ever fit that bill, because none of us were there at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, none of us witnessed his baptism, none of us witnessed his, his ascension, nevertheless, we are called to do the same thing that these were called to do. We are called to point people to the truths about Jesus. We are, we are called to go in the power of the Holy Spirit and take the Scriptures which the Spirit has inspired and has written to point men, women, boys and girls to the only Savior for their souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must continue doing it. We must continue bearing witness to Jesus even when persecution and trouble comes. We continue in the power of the Holy Spirit taking the word that the Holy Spirit has authored to people and praying that the Holy Spirit will open their eyes to see the truth of that word. And we continue to do it. The verb there is in the present active indicative which indicates that it's a continued action on the part of believers. It's also important that we recognize that the verb translated here to bear witness or to testify is the word in Greek, maturio. And, and it's the word from which our word martyr comes from. To, mar to be a martyr, of course, is when we speak of that, we speak of one who's been persecuted, even killed, because of their beliefs and because they refuse to renounce their faith. What's interesting is that that word came to be used in that way as a result of the fact that Christians were so committed to their faith and they were so, so committed to living their lives to the glory of Christ and refusing to renounce their allegiance and their identity with Christ that they were killed. In fact, it was because they continued to bear witness. They continued to testify of Jesus that they became what the word actually is in the verb that became the noun they became martyrs in his words to his disciples Jesus is preparing them for those exact results and I should point out to you that that in the original manuscripts the gospel of John didn't contain chapter divisions or verse divisions those came along later, and they're helpful for us because it helps us find exactly where we want to go to. Sometimes, though, those chapter divisions and those verse divisions, well, they're a little unfortunate in where they came. And I would suggest that that's the case here in chapter 16 because the words that Jesus continues to speak in chapter 16 go right along with what he's already been saying in chapter 15. And, and so he continues to tell them about the same subject, what their response should be, or in this case, should not be in light of the coming persecution and hatred that they would experience. In fact, note what he says in verse 1. He says, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. That leads me to the last response the Lord expects from his disciples who face certain hatred and persecution of the world. The last response is this. We must respond by not falling away. We respond properly by not falling away. 
Notice that based upon the way that Jesus states it here, the greatest danger that the disciples faced from the hatred and the persecution of the world was not the persecution itself. It was not even the death that might have followed the persecution. The greatest danger that they faced was apostasy, was falling away, was, was being made to stumble. The word in the Greek there is the word skandalizo, from which we get our word scandal or scandalize. And we get that word, and it, it really indicates here that the disciples were not to allow themselves to be scandalized. They were not to allow the, the trouble and the persecution that they were going to face to, to cause them to lose faith, to cause them to stumble from the path of following him faithfully. In other words, as the old saying goes, he was forewarning them so that they could be forearmed. They would be forearmed to remain strong in their faith and committed to Jesus in spite of the trouble. And what I want you to know is that that same encouragement is repeated throughout the New Testament. Near the end of his life, the Apostle Paul recounted some of the troubles that he had faced for being a faithful witness to the Lord Jesus. And in doing so, he warned his young protege, Timothy, that the same thing would likely happen to him that had happened to, 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 to Paul. And he says it's going to happen to all those who follow the Lord. Nevertheless, listen to the encouragement and the similarity to what Jesus told his disciples that Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 and following. He says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But then he says, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Paul's words really echo the Lord Jesus' here. When persecution comes, and it will, we must not fall away. We must remain steadfast. We must continue to be faithful to Christ and to what he commands us to do. And it is that understanding that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. While we who are Jesus' disciples will encounter hatred and persecution, we are helped by the Holy Spirit who empowers us to remain his faithful witnesses. I mentioned before that this lesson from the upper room is certainly, well, let's be honest, it's certainly not as uplifting. It's not as what we might call encouraging as others that we have studied in this series of sermons. But let me also say this to you. This, this lesson is not disconnected from those other ones. It is not standalone in the fact that it, it's true and it doesn't pull from the the messages we've learned elsewhere. No, it, it's part of the whole package. And, and Jesus has told us to know him is to have intimacy with him. And it's to love him is to enjoy the blessing of, of having eternal life and to know that, that we have a home in heaven that's, that's awaiting us because he's gone there to prepare it for us. And to know that we have a, a place in heaven before God the Father. Well, that's, that's knowledge that's worth everything for us. And such assurance, it, it should give us boldness to continue serving him in the face of opposition. It also reminds us of the fact that the world's approval of our lives really has no ultimate value for us. 
The world can't give us any of the things that Christ has promised to give to us. The world's approval and the world's offer holds no real strong value for us because it cannot provide us with salvation and it cannot give us any peace that passes all understanding. Therefore, as those who have received salvation through the Lord Jesus, rather than being overcome with with gloom and with defeat, we instead move forward with holy courage and spiritual resolve. And we continue to proclaim Jesus Christ as the only hope for the world's salvation. We do it out of love for the world and out of obedience to the Father. C.T. Studd was a missionary from Great Britain to both China and Africa, and during his years he faced tremendous opposition against unimaginable odds. He penned these words. Listen to what he said. Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to build a rescue shop within a yard of hell. This is the kind of endurance that we as believers need to have. Difficult times, brothers and sisters, will come because we identify ourselves with Christ. And we are united to him. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Therefore, let us be found faithful, continuing to trust in Christ and continuing to proclaim his gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is yet another lesson from the upper room, and it is God's word to God's people. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we come before you humbled that you would call us out of darkness into light, recognizing that there is not one thing that we can stand upon that we can say was worthy in us to cause you to choose us, and yet you have, and that gospel message has transformed our lives. It's given us hope beyond that which we can see in this world. And it empowers us. It is from your Holy Spirit to continue to to follow you and to love you as you declare we should. And then you give us the mission to go out into the world and proclaim that good news to others. And we recognize from your word, just from what we've read here is plenty. But Lord, we know that if we continue reading through the historical part of the New Testament and even into the epistles, we recognize that this this opposition to the message that we proclaim will continue, and yet we know that we are called to continue to go. We pray for success in that regard, not so that we can brag upon ourselves and pat ourselves on the back for our obedience. We pray for success so that there will be those who are lost and dying and going to hell who will hear the message of the good news of Christ and respond by faith, and that they too will join the ranks of those who will one day stand before your throne proclaiming you as Savior and Lord. We pray that for their good, but also for your glory. But in the process of our going, we pray for strength and we pray for encouragement. We pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to work. And so, God, we commit ourselves to doing that, recognizing that you're the one that's called us to do it. And so we go obediently out of love for you and love for our neighbor. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the encouragement that it provides us. And we thank you for the hope of heaven that you have given us. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. 
Amen.